What's up, guys? This is the It Ain't Easy Podcast. I'm your host, Dom Charanza. Let's get it. And I'm really excited today. We have Brady Leivold on the podcast today. Brady has started a uh, initiative, a community initiative within the hockey community, uh, raising awareness for mental health and addiction. Brady, really excited to have you, man. Hey, thanks for having me. It's um, honestly, it's a real honor to be here, especially in this area. Um, it's very near and dear to my heart. And uh, thank you for having me. I'm really looking forward to this. Awesome. Now, I know you have so much to share with us and such an inspiring story. Um, <coughs> you spent um, quite some time playing professional hockey as well. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to know kind of how I start everybody off is kind of a journey from elementary Brady to, you know, uh, post-secondary, like kind of after school, like what was that journey like for you? What were your experiences? Yeah. Um, for as long as I can remember, I, w- I loved hockey uh, uh, right from day one, um, right in and around the time that I started to play hockey. I had a couple things happen to me that changed the course of my life forever. Number one, uh, my mom left my dad and my dad became a single dad pretty much overnight. Um, short time thereafter, um, I was sexually abused when I was five. And that was the first year that I started to play hockey. And so hockey did, hockey did a couple things for me, but really essentially what it did is it became my outlet. Um, it became the safe space for me when I had a stick in my hand, whether it be on the ice or on the front street uh, or in my carport. That's where, that's where I was uh, right at home, and I didn't have to think about anything else. I didn't have to think about my mom leaving. I didn't have to think about the abuse, um, nothing else but hockey. And because of that, um, I was able to achieve uh, some, some pretty uh, high levels of hockey, uh, but I'll tell you, uh, coming home after school, I just lived to, to get on that front street and play street hockey and, and have that stick in my hand and, you know, knocking on my friends' doors. This is pre-social media and cell phone days, you know, go knock yeah. on the door. Hey, do you want to come home and play hockey? And, you know, sometimes they would, sometimes they wouldn't. It didn't matter to me. I would, I would play by myself uh, on both teams sometimes, <laughs> you know, checking myself, pretending on both teams. Uh, but hockey certainly gave me that, that outlet and, and, and it taught me so much, right, about myself, um, provided me with so many great friendships. And, uh, you know, you talk about uh, self-discipline and commitment and, and work ethic, and that's something certainly that hockey taught me. Um, but the reason why I loved hockey so much, we like I think it's a great game. It's exciting. There's no doubt about it, especially in the early 90s, Pavel Bure, you know, there was there was nothing like it um, in and around that time. So I fell in love with it. But it was it was really the piece of of getting outside of my own head that the reason why I loved hockey so much. Mm-hmm. Um, it was the only place where I didn't like I said, I didn't have to think about all that trauma. So, um, you know, elementary school was was pretty good for me. School was uh, was a good place for me, generally speaking. You know, I had a lot of friends uh, in quotations, um, uh, you know, girls as you know, I got older. Uh, that was never really an issue for me. Um, but I was always putting on these masks, right? And, and from day one, I started to hear homophobic uh, language uh, on the playground or in the dressing room, you know, you know playing hockey. And, um, you know, I learned really early on uh, that some of this language can really have a major effect on somebody's life. And I would see people get labeled um, and, and essentially their lives be destroyed because of it. Sometimes it's not even true. It's just people saying that. And so because I was sexually abused by an older man, I made a very conscious decision that I wasn't going to tell anybody. 
And so what that did, I just started to wear these masks and I just, whatever I had to do, whoever I had to be uh, to fit in, uh, to make sure people didn't know the real Brady, uh, that's what I did. And it worked for a while uh, until I, until it just didn't. Hockey wasn't working anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, by the time, you know, I hit grade 11, I was playing in the Western Hockey League for the Swift Current Broncos, um, which is arguably the best junior hockey league in the world. Uh, you couldn't play at a higher level at 16 years old. Um, there I am, you know, living out my dream. Pretty much every Canadian kid's dream. I don't want to generalize here, but a lot of Canadian kids especially grow up with that dream of playing professional hockey. And this is the first step towards that, that goal. And uh, I, just remember, I just remember being there and, and not wanting to be there. Right. Like I think a piece of me wanted to wanted to fulfill that dream. Like I, I knew the opportunity that I had, but my mental health was falling apart. Um, you know, the first thoughts of suicide started to creep in. Um, you know, alcohol became pretty prevalent. It was like, whoa, I kind of like the way this makes me feel. I don't have to think about uh, any of this other stuff and I don't have to play hockey to escape. And now there's this there's this alcohol. And that's kind of how it started for me. And um, you know, my hockey career was a bit of a disaster on the outside. Um, you know, I had multiple chances and, and would leave teams for mental health reasons that a lot of people didn't understand. This is back in, you know, 2004, 2005. We weren't really talking about this stuff. And, and you know, I thought I had to do it all on my own, right? I couldn't tell anybody. And it was this warrior mentality of suck it up and get back out there. And uh, I just couldn't do it anymore. Um, uh, and, you know, I ended up, you know, sticking with hockey, but there was times where, where, where I would quit and, and come home and have these breakdowns and all the while never telling anybody why, you know, the trauma and what was going on with me from, from childhood. And um, I kind of got labeled as this, um, not like, like a bad egg, you know, it's who is, what's wrong with this Brady guy? He's, he's a problem child. Um, there's issues going on. All the while, not too many people along the way stopped and, and sat me down and said, hey, we can clearly see something's going on here. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe we can get to the root of it. Having said that, I'm not sure at that time I would have been ready to address it anyways. Um, but who knows, right? Uh, so I don't know if you want to hop in here at all. I don't know if I'm getting a little off topic. But that was my experience through through elementary school was just living to play hockey. Uh, that was all I did. Anything uh, active, really, but hockey especially. You know, athletics uh, were my life. I didn't want to be in a classroom. I wanted to go to PE six hours a day, you know, and... I just couldn't wait to to get home and and just explore life. I had this, I think as kids, I always say this to people, and I have this vivid memory of being a kid and, you know, being like a spring morning and the birds are chirping and it's sunny and your eyes open and you just feel so alive. Like you don't have a moment to think. You're like, you just spring up and you're like, I'm alive. Let's go take on the world. You know, like you're five, six years old. You're just like ready to to take on the world and do anything. And you have all these hopes and all these <clears throat> dreams and just this endless potential. And somewhere along the way, it's like someone just comes and takes that. Yeah. Right. And that's how it felt for me. Um, that zest for life. Um, I'm now almost 35 and I'm just in the last year and we can get to that starting to find that, that drive just to live, to explore, just be grateful that I'm here. Look at this place. Look what we're doing right now. It's incredible. Um, We have so much uh, opportunity and such a limited amount of time. And I, I wasted so much time trying to 
trying to do everything on my own, try to fight all my demons on my own, if that makes any sense, that it, it put me uh, down a really dark path. And I'm sure we can get to that. But feel free to hop in if you'd like. And if there's anything that I didn't cover, I'm, I'm happy to answer it. No, I, I just wanted to listen because that was also great. <laughs> um, just with regards to like at the, you know, the grassroots level where you said you developed your love for hockey kind of like in the backyard or in the front um, kind of driveway, playing with friends. Um, in, in the club system of sports, because I know that, you know, hockey's a little bit different than some of the other team sports. Um, basketball and hockey are similar in that a lot of the development um, at that level comes from outside of school. So what you have is community that's, like, heavily uh, male-based, regardless, like, res respective to your gender. If you're yeah. playing women's hockey, I'm sure it's the opposite. But um, there's a lot of talk nowadays about, like, toxic masculinity, uh. right? And I think oftentimes, like, toxic masculinity is actually, like, a lack of masculinity in some spaces. Yes. Um, in the space where you're playing hockey and every day you're dedicated to this group of young boys in a locker room, like it's only natural that it would breed a certain level of, um, you know, you speak about like the way we're talking about gender, the way yeah. we're talking about sexuality. Um, was it problematic at the time? And like, what kind of things did you pull from? Yeah. Um, I think I kind of alluded that alluded to that. I'm glad you kind of, uh, bringing this up, but I kind of alluded to that earlier with, um, with respects to uh, language in the dressing room, right? Mm -hmm. Homophobic language, that kind of stuff. Um, and that was really the first uh, experience that I had with it of uh, kind of this group of um, young boys who were, you know, throwing out these words or labeling people. And I kind of just saw, you know, how it was affecting these individuals. Meanwhile, nobody knew what was going on for me. So that was the first experience that I had. But, you know, right from... Man, right from, right from I can remember, um, you know, as soon as I'm a teenager, we start to have parties before junior even, you know. Um, definitely the, the toxic masculinity is, is, is very prevalent. Certainly in hockey, that's really my only experience. And I'm, you know, I'm actually an ally with the You Can Play team, and my podcast is sponsored by Pride Tape. So I do a lot in this space yeah. um, through equality and, and, and that kind of stuff. But, you know, just the way that I, I always tell people this, I never felt like I belonged in a hockey dressing room um, mm -hmm. because of a lot of that. Um, the way that uh, a lot of uh, people would demoralize women, um, the language they would use. Um, I just, I never found comfort in that. I actually found like it was disturbing. Yeah. And, uh, you know, people want to label hockey players as a certain type of person. And there's been times in my life where I thought, well, okay, maybe, maybe they are. Uh, but I've done a lot of thinking about this in the last couple of years and just... In general, I'm sure maybe some sports, a lot of sports are the same. Uh, but here in hockey especially, uh, it's kind of a unique sport. It's the number one sport. And if you're a hockey player, you just get treated differently. And I can say that because I've seen it firsthand. I've experienced it firsthand. And I don't yeah. agree with that by any means. I, I think it. I think we should all be treated the exact same regardless if you're homeless or if you're a hockey player playing in the NHL. Um, but, you know, I, I feel like... You know, move, let's just say when I moved to junior and you get a bunch of guys who are from all over Canada living, moving into this small town and all they really have is themselves and, and their well, teammates. And they were all the best players right? from their respective communities. Exactly, right? right? Yeah. So there becomes this um, kind of environment that it's sort of like this entitled um, attitude that I'm seeing, especially these days. But 
I never felt comfortable in a hockey dressing room, and that was a big reason what contributed to uh, my lack of success. And I say lack of success, and I had success, but I could have been a lot. I had a lot more potential than I ever fulfilled, and that was because I, I felt anxious all the time. I felt insecure all the time. Um, the teams that I played on in junior, for the most part especially early on, it was a dog-eat-dog. It wasn't a supportive environment uh, from the older guys um, down, which you would hope to see in a dressing room, the older guys bringing along the younger guys. But Mm -hmm. I had a really hard time in Swift Current. Uh, I got picked on a lot. I got bullied. I got hazed. All the stories you hear of hockey, hazing, and all of that, all that stuff happened to me, and I'm not the only one. um, But I can only speak on my experience. And so it's really tough. Here I was, 16 years old, in Saskatchewan, two provinces away, supposed to be living out my dream, uh, supposed to be with these guys who are your teammates, and I felt like they hated me, right? I felt like I didn't even want to go to the rink anymore. Um, that was my experience. I was I was scared to go to the rink because I was scared of how I was going to be ridiculed. What is it going to be today? If it's not this, it's that. It was just constant assault and 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 verbal attacks and just belittling and that that really pushed me to look for something else and that's when I told you about when I found alcohol and um and because now it was like well I don't even want to go to the rink this is supposed to be my safe space right this is where I go to let everything out and be okay and now now I'm going to the rink and it's this is just compounding my issues because I have all this other stuff going on. And regardless, even if you take away those guys who were making things hard on me, it was still a pressure cooker, right? It was yeah. still like, you got to perform and you're, oh, it's, it was um, something beautiful about it, being able to find that, when you can just find that inner strength to push yeah. and, and to succeed and to and to just push yourself to the limit. But there's also a very dark side to to it when if you're not in the right headspace and what does that look like for an athlete, mm-hmm. right? Like what does that look like for an athlete when you're trying to perform at this high level um, but you're riddled with anxiety and, and you can't even think about playing hockey or playing basketball or whatever. All you can think about is I don't want to be here right now, mm-hmm. right? And I think people have a hard time understanding that and – you know, I've, as I've um, connected with some of these guys that I played with all these years later, yeah. some of the, especially some of the guys who were my age, younger guys that were essentially going through the same kind of stuff, I talked to them and I said, like, what were you feeling back then? And they're like, man, I was so anxious. I couldn't, couldn't focus. And I'm like, me too. Like, what if we were just, what if we just openly talked about that? Yeah. Right? Back in the day. Like, how much easier <clears throat> would that have made it if we were all talking about how we were feeling instead of trying to suppress it and stuff it down? So I, I you know, I'm really working closely in, in the space of hockey and I have goals of one day being far out of hockey, not always with hockey, but what I'm the work I'm doing. I, you know, the downtown east side is right around the corner. It's calling my heart. Like I want to serve um, people who are really struggling. But right now I'm focusing on the hockey piece, trying to use hockey as a vehicle for mental health and addiction and change, and and try to bring some eyes to it. Um, you know, but I'm really trying to educate these young these young players. I'm in a position where. Um, you know, teams bring me in and I share my story and, you know, I'm so grateful uh, to be in the position that I'm in, but I, I really try to hammer the key points home of, of, you never know what someone across from you may be going through. Mm-hmm. Um, 
sometimes, you know, we don't need to, to push their buttons and, and, you know, you think it's all in good fun. I know a lot of the guys did when I was going through it. It was not fun because I was going home and contemplating suicide every night. That's not fun. Right. And I wasn't comfortable enough to tell anybody or to tell my coach, I'm not going to rat anyone out, whatever you want to call it. And, and you just suck it up. So, um, it became dark, but at the same time, right. I had a lot of great experiences, like, yeah. like a lot of great experiences playing hockey. Um, you know, traveling around and, and playing and competing and practicing. I mean, there's a lot of good in there, but the dark times for so long overshadowed that. And I'm just starting to appreciate all those good times and the memories now going, ah, oh, you know, would have been nice just to go back and spend a little more time here and not rush out of the rink so much. Oh, practice is over. Okay. Bye. See ya. Like yeah. that was me. I'm like, I'm out of the dressing room. Uh, you work out after mm, maybe today, maybe not Bye. Like I just wanted to leave and, um, just wish I would have been able to soak all that up a little bit more. Um, yeah. and, and I try to instill this in, in the young athletes is, um, I was so focused on this destination, right? The NHL, NHL or bust, that's it. And, and I s forgot to, to stop and appreciate the journey. Yeah. Um, and, and the people that play a part in that journey. Um, you know, I wish I would have done a better job uh, as a young man appreciating, you know, my billet family and the trainers and the fans and, and, and everything that comes with it. But I look back and I, I picture 16, 17 year old Brady and he didn't have the, the capacity to do those things. He was hurt. He was traumatized. He was going through a lot. And there was no, there was no time for, for me to enjoy because I was in constant state of survival. It was fight or flight mode all day, every day. And it was basically like that my entire life up until two years ago. So if you feel like hopping in, go yeah. ahead. It was interesting. Like you speak about fight, fight or flight and just the difference in like how men cope with stress and how women cope with stress. Um, so this class recently and they were talking about, you know, primitively we're designed to have that and it's flight or flight but yeah. women they have you know it's it's higher levels of estrogen in the body stimulates oxytocin which is like yeah. the feely touchy the love communicative chemical. love chemical makes you want to be more expressive and so what they have naturally like hormonally is the ability to express their problems and communicate and all these things and we associate that with feminine but now we're getting to a stage where we're understanding that like we need that yeah. just as much as they do and we might have to push and like do something that might feel uncomfortable for us to, you know, sit down with another man and express our feelings yeah. and express our problems. But that's really like the key to like progressing and yeah. and lowering our rates of like mental health, etc. Um, and the other the other thing I wanted to say is like it's not just hockey, yeah, right? Like the the locker room culture is toxic in every sport, and I think that um, environmentally, like it's a combination of the age at which it starts in hockey mm -hmm. is like you're talking about 16 year old guys younger right 10 to 11 year old guys being put in a locker room by themselves and also given like this god complex of yeah you're the best person from here you're the best person from here you get all the girls at your high school you only go to school half the year yeah. it's those things yeah. that contribute to like the the you know the development and the maturation of these men that are you know questionably um 
you know, homophobic or whatever it may yeah. be, right? And and I think that's important to understand. People like a lot of people that are from the outside looking in and don't understand the dynamic of like yeah. how that you know occurs. They just think, oh, these guys are assholes. That's right. right? There's, a, there's a reason, right? And there, that's the the other side to that is it, it's not just dangerous for the current situation. Like if you have a group of kids that you know come in that moment, it's what does that look like. 10 or 15 years down the road for that individual if their life in hockey doesn't work out and they've lived this life of promise and they're the best from their town and just what you were talking about, all that stuff. And then something happens and it, you know, we all have to stop playing sometime competitively regardless of your sport. I mean, some sports you can play longer. I mean, John Daly is still crushing it in golf, I'm pretty sure, and he's like 60-something, but that's golf, right? Um, But eventually somebody will will come and say, you know, your time is done. You can always play for fun. We know that, but Mm -hmm. your time is done. And and nobody really knows when that is. We all hope that we're going to have these long careers in whatever sport or whatever it is. But at any given time, an injury can set in or, you know, maybe you don't perform for a year or two and then you're done or something happens. Um, Setting... uh, kids up certainly in hockey would just use hockey as an example you know like you said 16 17 even younger you have this like god complex and then all of a sudden you're thrust into the real world and your hockey is no longer a part of your life Mm -hmm. and you have to integrate into the everyday world it's extremely challenging and that's where we see a lot of guys turn to drugs right alcohol Um, because how do you recreate that like you know i used to um you know fight quite a bit in hockey how do i recreate um you know center ice squaring off with somebody twenty thousand people in the seats screaming your name whatever and it's this dump of adrenaline that just right i mean i would never want to do it again because it was it's crazy like the way that the ang- the anxiety and the stress and the of the fighting but but that it, environment is that environment it special. becomes addicting yeah. right it becomes addicting this adrenaline dump and 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 people like know you and and you kind of have this false sense of who you are i mean i i thought i knew who i was i didn't have a clue i was never a hockey player at heart that's not where i belonged it's just i was good at hockey because hockey made me feel good and that's where i put my time that's why i became good at hockey i told you from the start right it's not like i had some god-given natural ability to play hockey it's because i put in the hours you want to talk about the ten thousand hour rule mastery um you know i put in ten thousand plus hours probably before i was 12 years old you know Mm -hmm. like that's all i did that's all i did um but yeah it becomes very dangerous um transitioning out of that um and that's sort of what i'm doing now and why i'm doing what i'm doing now is because i saw a great need uh, for that in hockey and, and in all sports. I'm opening my eyes to other sports as well. And, um, but I, I saw this need and, and so many I have a, so many people I've lost uh, friends and former teammates and guys I played against to overdose, um, prominent hockey players. Um, uh, in fact, I was, you know, we're not too far from the downtown east side in Vancouver and I just was down here handing out sandwiches the other day and I came across a guy that I played hockey with my whole life, played in the WHL, played pro, and he's homeless down on the downtown east side right now. Mm. Um, And a big reason for that is because these guys get lost when they're done playing. They don't know what to do. If you you don't have a good support system and something to really fall back on, and it can't can't just be something that, oh, I'm going to go work a construction job. It's not going to be fulfilling for a guy that just came out of pro hockey. You know, How, how it sounds entitled, it sounds whatever you want to call it. But how do you go from that, what I just talked about, fighting, 
or scoring in front of 20,000 people and then someone being like, hey, you know, your, your, your time here is done and uh, you played minor pro. Maybe you don't have millions of dollars. Maybe you just grinded it out for 10 years and you have like nothing yeah. but a beat up body, missing teeth, mm-hmm. right? Like, and, and you're feeling so empty and it's like, well, I could go get a job. That's what I did. And then I would go get a job. And then I feel even emptier. I'm like, yeah. what am I doing here? Like, no disrespect to everyone in this field, but like I feel like I could be I could be doing more. Yeah. Right. And then you start questioning yourself. Or I did anyways. And um, you know, I, I became severely addicted to drugs early on, um, due to my trauma. Uh, but a lot of guys will go through their careers with, you know, maybe drinking a little here and there, maybe trying stuff here and there. But they still have that that structure every day. Okay, I gotta go to the rink, or I gotta go here, I gotta be here, be there, and there's this schedule and there's this structure. Yeah. And then when that's taken, it's like, holy, and then I can't tell you how many guys I know that, that are currently struggling right now with alcohol and drugs that played pro hockey and, and are okay. actually quite a few who are, you know, I, I'm pretty tight with guys in the NHL. I have a lot of friends. Um, and I've become kind of this guy that people reach out to now. Um, so I get to hear about a lot of the stuff that people don't get to hear about and that I can't share publicly because right. it's, it's confidential. Uh, but it's really opened my eyes to just, just the problem at hand. And I'm not sure how we solve that. Yeah. Um, well, I think communication is a yeah, great start. Yeah. Just having that conversation. I like that. Yeah. yeah communication and community like for me when i talk about healing or growth or change it's got to be communal like uh, you got to get people helping people or or helping a cause um and i just i I love community and that's sort of what i've been trying to build with puck support that's the organization that i've started we're close to launching the charity um and, and it's really exciting because it's a it's it's people from young boys and girls who are, you know, eight, nine, ten years old to guys who are playing or former pros or parents or coaches who um, have embodied this this puck support community and taken it into um, their teams and their dressing rooms and having conversations. It's it's been unbelievable uh, just to hear the um, the stories that I'm hearing that you know I wasn't there, so I'm not directly responsible for what's taking place but it stemmed from you know me starting my podcast or me starting puck support and they're like hey guess what happened today and you know i don't take the credit because it's not about me it's just so powerful to see people talking and being vulnerable and i think that was something that why people have been so drawn to my story is because like i didn't really have a choice okay like we can get in do you want to get into this a little bit about my story or where do you want to go with this sure Sorry, before we dive in, just yeah. one second. Just, you know, this car, just that car. We're taking a break. Real, real quick. I'm going to grab my phone. Of course. I want to take some videos and stuff. Yeah, you guys can pause and all these for a sec. What's up? Someone can pause and all these for a sec. Just that. Okay. start somewhere right 
think it's flowing pretty good. Yeah, love it. There's, you just cut me off if, if I'm going too deep or whatever you want to do, man. I love it all, man. Uh, but it, I definitely will if it's like before you get carried away. I don't think any of it is out of line. It's a great conversation. So you Important can, messages. I, I've noticed that you know when I first started doing podcasts, I'd have all these notes. Yeah. To all these research. Yeah. And by the end of it, I'm like. Fuck, we didn't even use any of this. Like, you can't, you can't script it. You never know what anyone's no, gonna say, man. right? It's a, that's a beautiful thing about podcasting. Because then you, yeah, and you listen differently too. Like you end up um, listening just to respond with your next question or whatever it is, yeah. as opposed to just like yeah. continuing on based yeah. off what the person said. Yeah, like, hold on, I got so. number three here. Um, yeah. So in 1993, where did you? No, I don't like to do that. Yeah. That being said, though, like if you're speaking to somebody that's just like straight accolades and acquisitions or whatever it's like okay like that is a lot of substance to just talk about like yeah what you did during this journey whatever but i think free flow is also that's where i'm at free flow i do them i do my podcast live i just live right on youtube right on facebook press record let's fucking go like that's how i do it man i'm like you're really well spoken thank you man i appreciate that that's That's what i do man i'm doing um doing keynote speaking and that kind of stuff is my my passion right awesome yeah i'm going out to red deer to do a speak to a bunch of rig hands on an oil rig at the end of cool. the month paid pretty well to do it yeah too. so like it's it's been uh it's been good i mean turn your turn my uh my trauma and my the horrible story and the horrible stuff that i did i mean i spent three years in jail too like yeah. i don't know if you knew that but no yeah, man. Like oh, we'll and, get into that. Yeah, a so bit if you're comfortable, f- yeah. for sure, man. I'm an open book, and so, right. It, a couple of years ago, I'm mean, two and a half years ago, I'm in a jail cell, and now I'm, you know, I'm coaching kids, and like, <laughs> never thought any parents would allow me around their kids mm-hmm. again, right? And the most, the the thing is with that is the parents see the value that I bring. Like, yes, as a skills coach, because I was a good hockey player. But it's so much more than that. Like, how many of these kids are going to go to the NHL? Like, right. none, probably, that I'm coaching right now. Like, right. zero. Like, I don't have any – I don't have the best player in Ontario cause, yeah. or whatever right now. Like, so none. But how many of these kids are going to go on to um, have, you know, problems in life? And what does that look like? And faced with choices at a party, hey, do you want to try this? Do you want to try that? Like, And if they're starting to see the value of that – I bring by sharing my story and being open with these kids and mm-hmm. saying like they know like what can happen. So it's really it's it's been awesome to see the the response and the reception of of parents and just everybody. Um, it's incredible just when people want to make a change. Okay. No worries. Yeah, we'll definitely get back into that. Yeah, man. Um, we were talking about. Oh yeah. Yeah, I've heard people say many times that, um, you know, the athlete kind of dies twice. And, like, I, I hate it as an athlete myself, cause, but, like, there's so much truth to it with regards to, like, the dropout in sport. It's like you've defined yourself as, you know, said hockey player, said football player your entire life, and now that's taken away from you. It's like, well, who am I now? Um, I've heard, like, one uh, person, Vince Luciani, he's actually from Ontario, too. I don't know if you've ever connected with him. But he talks about um, defining yourself by, like, what you do rather than like what you're doing current or who you are sorry rather than what you're doing currently so it's like you know i'm dom i've played like football my whole life i play for so and so and both no like i'm relentlessly driven 
I persevere and like, you know, I'm resilient. I love and, that. And those like characteristics, I can take that into my next job, my next career, whatever space and kind of like light that on fire. And that's like who I am. And I, I really like that too. It's just um, a different way to look at it. And I think like that's a good segue to, you know, even the experiences you had playing um, like pro hockey and and the adversity you face with regards to like the social environment yeah. etc there was parts where you had to buckle down and you had to still persevere and regardless of what your performance is whether it was what you wanted it to be or better or um, missed the mark it was more just the fact that you had that environment you still persevered and you got done you got you went on to the pitch or you went on to the ice and you did your job yeah and I think those characteristics are people are, are things that people outside of sport are really missing and maybe you you know you lose sight on like your ability to persevere in like the current environment mm. like where you are right now uh, the things that you went through outside of sport like that kind of helped you get to that point and so um, maybe just talk a little bit about um, kind of the journey after the the dropout you said you, you were dealing with a little bit of addiction and things like that and a little bit a little bit yeah. <laughs> a little bit yeah um yeah so um i started to as i alluded to earlier um drinking pretty early um earlier than most kids not a lot right but it was this sort of rebellion attitude that i had um and and i found out right away that i liked alcohol um don't like it now but at the time that was the only thing that I that I had outside of hockey that provided me with um, some sort of outlet escape numbing right which is so unhealthy man is it so unhealthy but at the time I wasn't thinking that I had this very strict policy in my life that was no drugs like I'm an athlete no drugs like athletes don't do drugs which I found out was not entirely true mm -hmm. <laughs> but as a kid um, I look to these guys in the NHL, and I'm sorry for everyone listening that I keep talking about hockey, but I hope you can change it to whatever aspect or sport of your life that, that can relate to you. Um, but yeah, we, now I forget what I was saying. I'm such a, I lose my, my train of thought. But with hockey, I mean, you, you just, I look to these guys, they were like superheroes, NHL players, and there was no way that these guys were doing drugs. I mean, they're, they're NHL players. So mm -hmm. I made it very clear um, early on that I was never going to do drugs, which, of course, wasn't <laughs> didn't stay true for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. But up until after graduation of high school, I had not um, done any like hard drugs um, at all, zero um, used cannabis and stuff like that, but that was it. Drinking cannabis, that was it. And that was where, that was all I was, that was as far as I was going to go. Um, after my first full season in the Western Hockey League, came out rookie of the year, the Swift Current Broncos, um, had every opportunity to succeed next year. But as I told you, I wasn't, I just hated being at the rink and, um, because of the way I was being treated and the way that I felt. Um, and I came out of that season drinking quite a bit and so now I bring it back to my hometown of Port Coquitlam and like you said you only have to go to school for half the year I was pretty much graduated by the time I came home but I was still going to school to hang out with my friends because I hadn't seen them you know all year and I'm back home and I was drinking every day at school which I had never done in my whole life mm -hmm. right but not and seems kind of 
uh, crazy to think that I was playing in the Western Hockey League, and now I'm coming home to drink at school. But while I was in school, play, like when I was younger, all the other people were drinking. And I'm like, no, I'm a hockey player. But now that I was actually playing the highest level possible, yeah. that I'm doing these, starting to creep, these behaviors are starting to creep in. So the irony. I um, you know, I tried I tried ecstasy for the first time that summer, and that um, you know, I, I it put me on a path of um just hell right because in that moment when i did it the first time it was this relief this is the greatest thing i've ever done in my life i feel amazing um and i wanted to feel like that every single day and that's what i did you know every day for three months until i had to leave for hockey again and that's where the drugs really started and so i I highlight that always because i think it's important to understand um that when we have certain boundaries for ourselves once we cross that, it becomes a lot easier to cross that line again and go even further. Right. So, uh, you know, the fear of what could happen if I did this started to slip away. You hear these myths of these drugs and it was like, well, I'm never going to do that because I'm scared. But then all of a sudden you do it. And, you know, I'd, I, I did it because I saw people who I looked up to, other hockey players who had achieved greater levels of su- success than I had at a music festival. And on the fourth, it took me four days, but on that fourth day, I finally broke down that barrier and I said, yeah, I'll do it. And that kicked me on a path of, of substance abuse from 18 until two, just over two years ago. So 14 plus years. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, if I would have just held that boundary, you know, never done drugs, I don't go on that path maybe. But at the end of the day, I still had all this trauma that I wasn't dealing with. I wasn't ready to deal with. And so... I, uh, you know, I, I started to try other stuff. And by the time I was in my first year professional after signing with the Tampa Bay Lightning, uh, I blew my knee out and they prescribed me Oxycontin, a uh, very uh, high potent painkiller, opiate, uh, unchartered territories for me at this time, really. Um, you know, I think I tried it a couple times here and there, but never had a significant amount at my disposal. And, you know, I started to abuse them right quick. And, um, you know, painkillers are, are, I always have to make sure I tell people this because my understanding of a painkiller was always physical pain, right? You have a hurt back, a hurt knee or hurt whatever. Oh, I need something to kill the pain. I had no idea that these painkillers actually worked better on emotional pain than they did on physical pain. Hmm. So all of this trauma, all of this crap that I dealt with, you hear people talk about opiates like heroin and things where it's like this warm hug. And that's exactly what it was. Uh, I knew I was in trouble the second that I did it because I knew that this, you know, alcohol, the other drugs, everything, like they all made me feel, they all made me feel better, but not like this. Yeah. This was the answer. That's what I thought. Little did I know that you become physically dependent on these pills and what was going to happen but not me. I'm a professional hockey player. I can handle this. Sure, you know, Jimmy Jimmy down the street's hooked to them and he's lost everything. But that's that can never happen for me yeah. because I'm a hockey player and I'm strong. And, I'm, you know, man, within like a year and a half, I wasn't playing hockey anymore. Um, within three years, I was homeless on the downtown east side, not far from where we are now. I was down here for almost a year living in a tent as i walked to as i walked here from from gastown just now i walked past um just at the bottom of gastown right where my tent was for like three months wow right yeah and it was a pretty uh 
pretty powerful moment. I spent some time down here in the last couple of days, but just to understand, I was like, wow, like I used to live in a tent here. Now I'm going to go record this podcast and share my story. Like, this is awesome. It was a 400 meter walk from where I was to get to this studio. It just sort of happened, right? Yeah. Cam asked me last night, I think. And I was like, yeah, I'll see where that is. And I typed it into GPS and like 400 meters. I'm like, whoa, yeah. like, yeah, I'm there. What like hundred percent. And, yeah. and to be in the area that, you know, I was homeless and struggled and man, it was, it, um, it means a lot to, to be down here. Um, but I spent a year uh, homeless and then I spent two years in jail and then I moved out to Ontario multiple overdoses in there. I can't tell you how many times I've overdosed and been Narcan and brought back to life. Um, suicide attempts in there, uh, psych wards, rehabs, detoxes. There's lots on my story for anybody that wants to know more. Um, it's, it's pretty easy to find. Um, but it was, uh, it, was, it was really tough sledding and I didn't think that I had a way out. I didn't think I was ever going to get out of it. And I'd sort of just embraced this life of of an addict of whatever I had to do to, to get what my body needed. And all the long, I wasn't willing to face the trauma, um, or any of that. And that was really why that's really why I was in that position to begin with. And it, it took me, a, it took me a long time. You know, I went to rehab so many times and I would, I would give it like 90%. Mm -hmm. Like here's 90, but you're not getting this other 10%. But that 10% was what I needed to give for the, for the awakening to happen. And so to speak. And, um, you know, I moved out to Ontario just to kind of backtrack, um, after getting out of jail. And, you know, when I went to jail, it was front page news in the province, Vancouver sun, former hockey pro sentenced to two years in jail, whatever. And that's sort of why I mean, I didn't really have much of a ch choice, but if I wanted to do what I'm doing now, I needed to share my story openly and honestly. I mean, my story was already out there, but it was being told by somebody else, yeah. right? So, narrative. So, I, so I went to Ontario and unfortunately my addiction followed me out there. I found out real quick that you can't run from your addiction. You can try, uh, but it's there. And I spent another three years in addiction in Ontario and I spent another year in jail in Ontario. And when I got out of jail, um, I knew that I didn't want to, I didn't want to live this life anymore. Like I'd had enough. I didn't understand the purpose of why I had gone through what I had gone through. And I really believe there's a strong purpose there today with what I'm doing. And it was like part of my path to get where I needed to go. But mm -hmm. when I was going through it, man, it was tough. Like I just didn't want to live anymore. I, I tried everything, exhausted every resource you could possibly think of that I could think of that was brought to me. It was like, go do this rehab, go do this program, do this, talk to this person. I, would, I did it for years and nothing was working. And uh, I got, yeah, so I got out of jail. I was on welfare. I had nothing. I had like one pair of shoes that I owned from the jail. Like that's what I had. I had nothing, no hockey gear really, no computer, no nothing. And when I got out, shortly after I got out, I mean, I kind of got back into that life for a month, month and a half, I kind of fell back into my, my old ways. But I had this, this moment of clarity where um, it was like, you know what, start a podcast, you know, start a podcast and, and start sharing your story and, and, and be part of the solution because maybe your story can help one person. That was the goal, yeah. right? And so I borrowed a computer and sat in in, uh, in a car, a borrowed car. The worst audio quality in history was the first couple episodes mm -hmm. crackling and crack, right? 
And I didn't even have social media at the time because for 10 years, I mean, I social media under different names for doing different stuff, if that makes any sense, but none, none under my name. And so I started, I created a Facebook and just started sending it to people, you know, mm-hmm. creepy Facebook algorithms. It's like everyone I may know, it looks like a hockey player. So it's like, add, 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 check this podcast, check this podcast. You know, within a month, my my podcast was number three in Canada for hockey podcasts. Wow. And, you know, Sportsnet picked up the story and Sports Illustrated and a bunch of other, um, you know, news outlets. Global did a big story on me. The Vancouver province just did a story on me, front page news, um, a couple months back. So it started to garner a little bit of attention. Um, you know, and it fluctuates now that I'm doing video and audio, it's hard to kind of compile all the data in one place so that it fluctuates. And it wasn't about being number three or ratings. I stopped. I can't tell you the last time I looked at where my podcast was charted. I could care less because I know that it's not for me. It's not about how many people are are watching or listening. It's what are these people getting from it? Right. And I can confidently say that, you know, I think, you know, my podcast, I've been very lucky with some of the guests that I've had come on, like Theron Fleury and, you know, big names, like guys I looked up to, they become my friends, Doug Gilmore, a couple times been on the show. Like, and and you, you start to, uh, you know, understand that these conversations are really having an impact in, in people's lives and empowering them. And there's something special about that. Um, what was, it, what was the name of the podcast? Ha, uh, it was originally called Hockey to Heroin, The Road to Recovery. Yeah. And I have now switched it to Hockey to Hell and Back. It resonates a lot more awesome. than Hockey to Heroin. Yeah. Hockey to Hell and Back. I mean, we can all look at maybe not the hockey, but Hell and Back. I think we've all been to Hell and Back. Um, and yeah, and I've taken a month break from it, but I'm excited to, to get back to Muskoka. I leave uh, Vancouver on Saturday. I'm going back to Ontario, fire back up the podcast and and I'm really looking forward to that. But I needed that month break, as I told you before we went on. I've been going kind of hard in the yeah. podcasting space, but it saved my life. It gave me purpose. It gave me connection with people. And through doing the podcast, I started to uncover these stories of hockey players who had um, taken their own life or died of overdose. And we mm. hear of stories, you know, um, like Rick Rippin, who I played against in junior. He played for the Canucks and took his own life in 2011. Uh, Bugard and, and Belak and these bigger names. Um, Jimmy Hayes just passed away from fentanyl, played for the Boston Bruins. Um, but what about the people who didn't make it, right? Like, what about the people who didn't play in the NHL? Where, where, where are You're the stories? About one in a million, right? right? Yeah. I started. What I started to uncover was unbelievable. So currently in our database, um, we have 74 hockey players who have either taken their own life or overdosed. And it started with one story and then it started with another. I found out my friend and roommate from my time in the AHL, the American Hockey League, which is one level below the NHL. I found out he died of a fentanyl overdose in 2017. And in that moment, in that moment, I was like, whoa, (laughs) I wasn't the only one. Clearly at that point, I knew of two people who had overdosed Mm -hmm. um, from fentanyl. I was like, that's enough for me. I'm going to, I'm doing something about this. We're doing something about this. I'm, I've seen enough. And that's where puck support was born. Um, the idea of the charity. Uh, and again, I had no money. I had nothing. I didn't have a ton of people believing in me two months into my podcast journey after I just spent 12 years in addiction and, you know, oops. And, um, and, and basically hurt everybody in my life, whether I knew you or didn't, if you came to my life, I was looking to take something from you. So my track record wasn't very good, right? Like it it wasn't. um, So I had to put my head down and I just started to grind and and figured out how to do everything, how to build a website, how to produce a podcast, how to, you know, whatever I had to do, video editing, uh, all that stuff. And, and about 
six months in, Doug Gilmore's older brother, Dave Gilmore, raised like $2,500 for me just quietly on his 70th birthday. No big thing, whatever. And he's like, here's $2,500. You can do whatever you want with it for puck support. I had been calling lawyers to try to incorporate this charity and do all this stuff. And I was like, yeah, it's going to be about $10,000. Like $10,000. I have $10 right now. Like mm-hmm. this is this is crazy. Like how am I ever going to do this? And you know, so I got this $2,500. It wasn't quite enough um, to, to start the charity. But I was like, well, maybe I can pay to get a professional video done, which I could have came to you guys down here. Um, but, shout out Project AM. Yeah, Project AM. Big <laughs> shout out. But I said, I thought to myself, if I get this one video done, where am I? Where are we at? Where are we at? Like one video, then what? Back yeah. to square one. So I actually ordered a heat press and like a vinyl cutter. And I was like, you know, I'm going to make a clothing line. Like, yeah. and that's what I did. Taught, self-taught how to press shirts, how to do whatever. This is what I had uh, to do, right? Yeah. And a big part of what we do is, uh, you can see, and we put a name of a hockey player in all of our stuff who's either died of an overdose or a suicide. Yeah. So there's... I'm going to show that to the camera. Yeah, for sure. This one's coming down, but I have it on my oh, shirt too. Yeah. This one, this one here, they have it all in our, in, in every piece of clothing, there's a name of a hockey player who's taken their own life or died of overdose. Cool. And, you know, I press... Now I have some help with my with my friend in that, but I you know I basically press every every piece of clothing, um, and I'm the one putting the names um, in there. And some of them are my friends, former coaches, and every time I see I press one of those names in there, I just see my name, you know, going yeah. in there, and how grateful I am to still be here, and what a what a um, it, it feels like a, a great responsibility, um, but in a really positive way. Um, to have the accountability and, and another piece to that is it's not just about remembering them I've been able to connect with like the family members mm. um, of people who have lost loved ones and they're like huge supporters of what we're doing and they you know, I had a message from um, they become quite close the guy who's in my hat I can share a story because his family's okay with it they become like family to me Daniel Miner played for the Barry Colts in the OHL um, he died of a fentanyl overdose in 2021. I didn't know him. I had no idea who he was. Never crossed paths. He's in Ontario. I'm in Western Canada. But, you know, as I started to do this, by a year, year ago or so, I became the guy. If a hockey player dies, it's coming to my inbox type deal, yeah. right? People just kind of know that now. Um, it's tragic, but that's how I became ac- came across this story. And, you know, their family has really taken an interest to me and puck support and uh, just for example, on Mother's Day last year, just shortly after he passed away, she, the family sent me a picture. There's like 20 of them, all in puck support stuff, all with Daniel's name in it, mm. right? And they said, this is my first Mother's Day without my son, but it feels like he's here because we're all wearing puck support wow. with his name on it, yeah. right? And it's it's an incredible way to, to keep their memory alive. And, um, you know, it's really uh, heartbreaking um, and it's not a hockey problem. I don't blame hockey for these problems. I just look to utilize the things that I know, and that's hockey and mental illness and addiction. So that's my focus right now. But, you know, we're, we're close to launching the charity. Um, I should have been uh, rollerblading across Canada, leaving in like three weeks, but we had to put it off uh, for mental health and addiction. I'm supposed to be in Newfoundland right now. Wow. Yeah, but across because of, Canada. Across Canada, man, 7,300 cool. 7, kilometers. So we put it off till next year. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, with COVID, trying to plan all these events, like we want to we have events across. 
across Canada where we're stopping in communities. It's not about just rollerblading through and saying, bye, see ya. Like, right. We're going to stop and, and make connections and bring out the local uh, professionals, addiction, mental health services that they have in that area and try to bridge that gap, right? Mm-hmm. And bring other people out and talk. So we weren't able to, to do it in the capacity that at least I wanted and I think all of us on the team wanted to do. Um, you know, didn't know that come March they were going to, you know, change kind of the scope of COVID. But trying to plan it for a year in advance, we had to call it in January and say, right. you know what, like we we're, four, we're four months out. We don't know. We can't, we can't, you know, sponsors were like, well, we don't want to if we can't. And it just became a really um, tricky situation. But that's the plan is to, to next year do that um, and, and just really trying to um, show people that there's a way out of hell. So. Um, you know, I've been clean since February 8th, 2020. Um, almost cry when I say that, man, because yeah, it's, um, you know, 10 years of IV drug use, you know, overdoses and jail cells and hopelessness. And I share it candidly because there's people out there that are themselves or they know someone who's going through it. And it's a really tricky situation. I wish I had one answer for people. I wish I had it. People always want to know, how'd you get clean? Or what can I do to this? It's different for everybody. Yeah. But I firmly believe that, that we all have that, that the capacity to just unlock our, our potential and, and our life. Um, and, and sometimes that gets taken from us. Our innocence at five years old being sexually abused can put you on a trajectory for, for severe mental illness and, and addiction and, and hell. Um, but it wasn't until I stood up and took back that power and addressed that trauma that like nothing was going to change until I just came out and you know started to talk about it whether it be just directly to one person like I am right now or in my case I started to share my story a little more publicly because like I told you I didn't have much of a choice it already was problem I'm in jail and there's being stories written about me and I'm like oh right yeah sitting there in jail and people coming up throwing the newspaper hey you made the news today you know and it's like oh it's like super embarrassing yeah more so for my parents because they were the ones out here having to deal with it every day but, you know, I didn't have much of a choice to start to share my story, but I started to do a lot of therapy surrounding that trauma. And I found very quickly that, you know, I was able to take back my life. And, and, and that that guy who did that to me, you know, I was able to forgive him. Like, as crazy as that may seem, me holding on to this anger and resentment, like I went over my whole life, if I ever see this guy, I'm going to kill him, you know? Like, that wouldn't do anything. Mm-hmm. That's just going to put me in a worse spot and it's going to make me feel worse. So I had to forgive him, right? And I think forgiveness um, is, is huge. And I've had people forgive me, right? It's not just me forgiving someone who hurt me. I hurt a lot of people. And there's been a lot of forgiveness in this last two years. And it's been a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. I hear your passion there. And you speak of like just helping that one person to start off with. And definitely like this conversation will be transformative for one of our listeners. And I appreciate you for, you know, your expression, like your vulnerability there. It's, yeah, man, it's really powerful. Um, you spoke on earlier just like with like, you know, 90% of the work and then it was that 10% that you needed to like kind of get you over the hump when it came to like your recovery. Uh, what is that 10%? Like what's the difference between the 90 and the 10? Yeah, for me, the 90 and the 10 was the 90 was the, the surface stuff, right? Like the stuff that was easily um, talked about, uh, generally speaking, for everyone, right? Like if you're in addiction, uh, you can clearly see that you have a problem. Um, But for me, that 90 was, 
I'm going to give you, give you most of me and most of what's going on. But that 10% was the sexual abuse, right? And, and two, the effect that it had with my mom leaving. And that was something that I'm just starting to understand. Like I've done a lot of work on the, on the sexual abuse side, but I'm just starting in the last, honestly, the last week to understand, um, since I've been home, I've been doing some, some healing here and stuff, just to understand what kind of impact that has when, I, when, when a parent leaves or my mom. Um, my dad was great dad, retired firefighter, um, but not a whole lot of like emotion and love there, right? Mm-hmm. It was this different time of, you know, there's love in other ways and support in other ways, but you can't really replace like a mother's hug, right? And so that was something that was lacking in my childhood was that love and that affection. And, you know, I would talk about it, but I would never let myself allow myself to um, fully go there and put myself back in the situation and, and try to understand what was going on with me. Why? You know, what did that do to me? And how does that impact my relationships moving forward, my friendships moving forward, my overall well-being moving forward? And, you know, so I, like I said, just in the last week, I've started to really focus on that and me and my mom have a great relationship today she was my through my worst times my mom was my rock but as a kid I mean that how do you explain that to a five-year-old all I wanted was my mom I wanted a hug I wanted and so I was really uncomfortable talking about all that stuff the sexual abuse my mom um but I think I kind of like felt bad for my mom like I didn't want to put too much out there because me and her are close now I didn't want to like bring that up because I know she's feeling not great about it and I didn't want to have to go back there but I realized I had to go back there right and that's not because I need to get mad or do whatever I forgive my mom but I need to understand what what did that do to me and, and how did that change the path of my life and the way that I was going to treat myself and treat others moving forward if that makes any sense at all yeah, like that that 90 seems to be kind of the the things that everybody needs to do and like the routine and the practice of like the recovery and then like that 10% is like the the deep rooted trauma and like how do I overcome that and actually like come to peace with that so I can move forward. Yeah. Yeah. Um oh, I lost my train of thought. That happens to me all the time, yeah. man. Concussions yeah, are damn. are not a good thing. They're serious, hey. You yeah. must have had a couple playing football or what? Oh, yeah, I've had a couple. Um, Just with regards to uh, recovery, like we spoke on, like the addiction recovery and like kind of the, the, I can't remember the name of the practice that you were doing just recently, like a couple days ago. Yeah, I've been doing, I'm going to do Cambo today. Yeah, Cambo. Today, but I've been doing uh, Senega and um, uh, Rape, which is uh, ancient uh, Amazonian uh, from the rainforest. It's just incredible. I think I know where maybe you're going with this because <clears throat> I just want to hop in here quick, but yeah. the addiction recovery, right? For me, it was like, okay, how do I fix this addiction, right? Like, yeah. how do I fix the, I got to fix my addiction. It had nothing to do with the drugs. Yeah. It had everything to do with why I was taking the drugs, right? Mm-hmm. There's a reason why there's people homeless out on the downtown east side right now. It's not because they want to be there. It's not because they choose to be there in a sense. Yes, maybe they they have a choice, but it doesn't it certainly doesn't feel like you have a choice. There's so much pain, there's so much trauma. And so I was always under this impression like the first few times I went to rehab, probably every time I went to rehab, I was like, I'm here to fix my drug problem. Yeah. No. 
like that, you know, drugs are just the, the byproduct of trauma, right? And mm-hmm. there, it doesn't have to be drugs. It could be alcohol. It could be sex. It could be gambling. It could be shopping. Like there's so many different things. Psycho. That, right? Exactly. And trauma doesn't have to be in the form of sexual abuse, like like a drastic, harsh thing that happened to me. I find when I talk to people, they're like, well, I didn't, my story's not really, you know, my trauma wasn't as bad as your, my, it's like, whoa, just stop right there for a second. It's all perspective. Mm-hmm. How were you feeling in that moment? How did that change your life? Don't compare my trauma to yours. Maybe from the outside, maybe it does look worse. That doesn't mean anything, you know? It impacted you, um, it impacted me, and it put us on this trajectory for whatever, whatever that looks like. And so I, I, I really tell people, you know, you want to solve a drug addiction or, a, you know, sex addiction, whatever it is, you need to figure out why you're engaging in those behaviors in the first place, mm-hmm. why you're looking for that escape. And uh, that was something that took me way too long to understand and way too long to um, even acknowledge the fact that, whoa, you know, I thought I was just using drugs because I liked it, the way it made me feel. But there's a reason why I liked the way it made me feel because I didn't have to feel like that. It took way too long to understand the di- like the chemistry in my brain and, and all of the um, things that have happened along the way. And we all go through trauma. Like right from day one, when you come out of your, your mother's you know womb or whatever, uh, C-section, whatever it may be, that's traumatic. Yeah. Like, are you kidding me? That's traumatic. That's your first yeah. real traumatic experience so we've all experienced trauma from day one and you know there's different forms of trauma but we're all going to face it and i think it goes back to what you were saying you know when we're able to talk about this stuff openly right what a what a change in my life when i was able to just say you know what yeah when i was a kid i was sexually abused it wasn't my fault you know, like I can look you in the eyes and say that now. And I'm not like, am I, I'm not embarrassed. I'm not ashamed. I wish I could take it back, but I can't. And, um, I know it wasn't my fault. Right. And so I don't know, there's, there's a real power in, in, in sharing and talking and human connection. Mm-hmm. Uh, what about your relationship with, uh, movement and fitness now? Yeah. Mo- movement and fitness. I'll be honest. I, I, I'd like to, um, as I get going, I rollerblade a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, that's my jam. It's not just rollerblading. I rollerblade with a hockey stick in my head. Like, oh, yeah. you know, I got the long hair, the mustache, rollerblading down Muskoka. It's awesome. I got like a madman, 35 years old with a stick. Look out. I don't care. It's my little kid, right? Cool. Like, yeah. that's me when I was a kid, and that's what I had to get back to. Um, something that's been lacking for me um, is definitely, though, my fitness. I mean, I'm still pretty fit, but for a professional athlete, it sort of I was sort of turned off yeah by the thought of working I was like why would I go work out I'm not even getting paid to do it anymore that was my you know I don't have to do it so why would I do it I didn't even want to do it when I when I had to do it that was my attitude um but as I've started to integrate more um movement and yoga meditation that kind of stuff it's a lot more like what I'm doing now and my plan for moving forward is a lot there's a lot more intention to it. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to the gym so I can get like, you know, go to the beach and be like, look at my biceps. Yeah. I'm going to the gym because I got sore hips yeah. <laughs> and, and sore shoulders and I want to work on mobility and I want to work on flexibility and, and these and strength and not not strength so people look and be like, Well, that guy went must go to the gym. You know, is he using steroids? <laughs> like that yeah. type of like look, you almost want to 
for me though it's about that and um i forgot like rollerblading with a stick in my hand like whoa you want to talk about the best medicine for me anyway it's like that's what it is some people like to go to the gym and lift i don't really Mm. like to lift anymore Mm. but i like to move i like to get that blood pump in and it honestly is the best painkiller in the world Mm -hmm. emotional painkiller for me anyways is just moving right being out in nature too like hiking and and that kind of stuff is what i'm i'm really into um but for anyone listening like if you're if you're having a hard time like let's just talk about mental health for a minute if you're going through a depression if you know you're you're really struggling you know, I never found an answer in, in pills from the doctor. That's just me. If you do, if you're listening, stick with your regimen. I'm not a doctor, but I never found the answer, um, or at least just the answer, mm-hmm. in a pill, right? Um, I would really encourage people to just get moving. And it can be sometimes overwhelming for people. Like, let's just use running, for example. You know, you got to start somewhere. If you can only run 100 meters today, run 110 tomorrow. Yep. Run 120 the next day. Start small. Set small goals that are attainable, that don't overwhelm you, that don't push you to um, being like, well, I can't do that, so I'm not going to do it, right? Because yeah. it doesn't feel good. Or set a goal of running 10K, and you get out there, and you run 300 meters, and you're like, <gasps> dying. Like, why? Yeah. why? Why set yourself up that way? Start, start small. And I really believe that... Um, mental health issues would drastically, drastically decline if people would get moving more. You got to move. Like we're meant to move. We are animals that are not meant to be, you know, sitting at a desk every day, you know, doing our job, which we may have to do. But if that's what you're going to do, you need to find a way to integrate movement and wellness and, and athletics of some sort. You know, it doesn't have to be a sport, but that is where you're going to get that release. You know, you never hear about, you know, back in the day, and probably had some, there were some people who were mad. That's what they used to say. But, you know, people were always in shape, like back in the day, because people, they had to, they had to go forage their food and, and, and go hunt and, and build shelters. And yeah. I think a lot of us forget that, right? That that's mm-hmm. the way, like, that's how I think. That's what we're meant to do. We're meant to work and to move and to wear out. Don't rust out. That's what my grandpa always said. Wear out. Don't rust out. I love that. And I'm just starting to click with me now. So um, I can I can say that I need to do a better job with my relationship with, with fitness and movement. But I can also say that in the last, you know, couple of years, especially, of course, I'm clean, I've become... Um, it's a lot more healthy for me. Like I'm back playing hockey, you know, I didn't play hockey for 10 years and huh. I went back and played hockey for the first time in 10 years. I'm playing now and I coach and, um, I rollerblade almost every day, especially when it's nice out. But I did, I did just sign up for a new gym in Gravenhurst, Ontario too. So it just opened while I've been here. So I'm looking forward to, awesome. to getting in there. Um, I know for me, it's a, it's a major component, uh, to my overall well-being, and, and, you know, that's, that's how I survived as a child, man. Yeah. <laughs> Rollerblading around, running around, doing whatever. And um, there's always going to be moments when we have to, you know, kind of sit in our own our own thoughts. And that can be challenging or it can be great. Um, but for me, the less that I have to sit around and deal with my own self in my own head by myself, the yep. better it is for everybody, <laughs> not just me. So getting out there and getting active, it's... Um, it's a huge piece um, to recovery, and and I say that for everybody because I think we all need to be moving more. Absolutely, right? I agree. 
Um, just a couple questions in closing. Yeah. So these are kind of like some random like check out or check in questions that we'll ask. Um, the first being, uh, this one might make people a little uncomfortable, but if I was to be at your house, what would I find at your place that I wouldn't typically find at others? Ooh. What would you find at my place that you wouldn't typically find at others? Um, well, if you're in Vancouver, my, where I live, there's a lot of Boston Bruins stuff. So, okay. <laughs> yeah, they torched the city got torched in 2011 here because the Boston Bruins won the Canucks. But I live with, um, well, my business is run out of um, Harry Sinden's niece's house. So Harry Sinden still works for the Boston Bruins. He was the coach of the 72 oh. Summit Series back when the Canada played Russia. Cool. He's been on the Boston Bruins payroll since 1966. He's 90 years old. He's still wow. getting paid as their senior advisor so awesome. i got a lot of cool old boston bruins memorabilia um but honestly probably wouldn't find a heat press and a room that's full of merchandise and and everything else in yeah. most people's houses we got a ton of stuff on the go the clothing line has gone extremely well um we're taking it to the next level when i get back here so it's really that would that would be what you find is 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 a room that's you know, heat presses and vinyl cutters. And awesome. it's like this workshop that I never thought at 34 I would have, you yeah. know? Cool. Yeah. Um, another one is if you could be inside of any movie, live inside of any movie, which one would you choose and why? Oh, that's a really tough question. Holy. Yeah, most people are like, you should have told me this one before. I wanted to think. No, that's, um, that's a really, really, really good question. The one that comes to mind, because I was talking about it this morning, I don't know if you've ever seen Mystery Alaska with Russell Crowe. It's this hockey oh, movie that's set okay. up in Alaska, in the middle of nowhere Alaska, and they play hockey on this outdoor rink, and this local, Hank Azaria, plays him. He moves to New York and becomes a writer for the NHL, like ESPN mm. or whatever, and he writes this column saying that this team in Mystery Alaska could rival any team in the NHL, mm. and so they fly the New York Rangers up there, and... Um, and they play this game, but just the premise of being in that Alaskan environment, they skate down like from, uh, they have like the dressing room and then there's like this ice path, like that goes all the way down to the rink. So, which is really cool because when I put my skates on for the first time again in 10 years, like I told you, I actually skated on the lake up in Muskoka. My old junior team had sent me a pair of skates when I got out of jail and said, Hey, forget about that life. Get your skates back on, go play hockey. I, and I did. And I pretty much skated down this driveway that was ice, um, you know, right onto the lake. It was my version of Mystery Alaska, of Mm -hmm. skating into the rink. And in that moment, I knew um, when I hit the ice again, I knew that everything was going to be okay for me. I knew that I was in the right place. And I I didn't know what it looked like. Again, I had nothing. I didn't didn't even start my podcast at this point. I just got on the ice. And this is just over two years ago. And it was just this overwhelming sense. And I was by myself. That was just like... And it makes me think of Mystery Alaska. So Mystery awesome. Alaska, man, that's my answer. If you, answer. if you haven't seen it, you should check it out. It's actually I, a great movie. I plan on it. It's, it's a great strong. movie. Um, and then the last one, just like a message to your younger self. Would you change his path? Do you have anything to say to him? Man, I think about this all the time. But no, I wouldn't change his path. Yeah. I wouldn't. Um, you know, when I was in junior... My last year, I played for the Kelowna Rockets, and I played online with Jamie Benn. He's the captain of the Dallas Stars. He's on a $76 million contract. There's a lot of other NHL. I played with Luke Shen and Tyler Myers, who play on the Canucks here as well. Um, I wouldn't trade my life for his, man. Mm-hmm. I don't have millions of dollars. I, I, I don't have a lot of money today. I mean, I'm, I'm good, but I don't have a lot by any means. Um, 
you could, I wouldn't I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't trade my life for yeah. for seventy six million or a hockey career or whatever. Um, I found my purpose in in really um, trying to help others and try to make a difference. There's one thing I could say to my younger self. Um, I would just let him know that he's so much stronger than he ever knew. Yeah, and I think that goes for all of us. Absolutely. And it was an amazing conversation we just had. <laughs> yeah, I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your story. And it's going to be transformative for a lot of people. Uh, it's, uh, thank you um, for having me and, and for the guys here in the studio. I think we're going to be doing some stuff in the near future when I'm back. Um, but thank you. Um, this is uh, just a walk here. Uh, just so happened to work out that I was at my friend's house last night and stayed there. And and when he sent the message, I'm like, I asked her, I'm like, Railtown, like where's Railtown? I'm like, I had no idea. You're right? in it, and she's like, Yeah, you're in it. I'm yeah. like, I mapped it 400 meters, and I was like, Whoa! So, it took me four minutes to walk here, but that four minute walk, um, it, it really, you know, I think I was meant to be here today for yeah. sure. There's no doubt in my Everything mind. Everything happens for a reason. Absolutely, um, was really empowering for me on a on like a selfish level. Um, that walk, you know, to to know that. You know, I'm not walking around down here. Some guy's asking me for change. And that was me not too long ago. But no, that's not me. I'm not down here anymore. I'm going to record a podcast to share my story to hopefully inspire others to, to come out of hell like I did, right? And so thank you. I, I really appreciate the time and, and the space to share and, and look forward to hopefully doing it again and connecting further down the road.